0: You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branko and Peter Outul.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. I am Bob Branko for episode 260. With us today, of course, our good friend and colleague, Peter Altschul. Peter, what's going on?
2: It's a glorious day in Missouri. We're all celebrating the Celtics dramatic win yesterday in Missouri. We're thrilled. Well, not really, but but uh we're it is a beautiful day in Missouri.
1: I'm so, pleasantly surprised at the result, Peter. I think yeah. you know that. Oh, I think yeah. I'm surprised but I'm happy that the Celtics uh, won game one. I'm won. totally thrilled. I want to give thanks to Raymond Gay our producer, Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place chat along with our media sources and Jacqueline Sylvia of JF's Web Solutions for making sure that our programs are available to the general public. Thank you, everybody who does that for us. I also want to give some shout-outs to three listeners. Allison from Michigan, hi. Also, Beth Collett from Massachusetts. Duncan Holmes from Texas. I wanted to give all of you a shout-out, and I can give a shout-out to you if you send me your opinions about today's show, of course, many of you have my email address, but for those of you who listen on the media sources and do not receive the program from me, my email address is BobBranco93 at gmail.com. That's Bob Branco B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-O 93 at gmail.com. Tell us what you thought of this episode. We'll say hi to you on next week's episode. Back again for another appearance, we have Peggy Chong. She's the blind history lady, and Peggy impresses us very much with all of the people that she refers to, blind people who have made it big in history. She has a lot of information for us. She's talked about people in the past. I'm sure she'll give us some updates and some news stories today about blind people in history. But before we continue, let me welcome Peggy back. Peggy, it's always a pleasure having you on In Perspective. take How you doing?
0: Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure to always be on your program, and I'm looking forward to chatting today.
1: All right.
2: Go ahead, Peter. So, Peggy, um, just for, for those who might not be familiar with you, explain briefly what makes you the blind history lady. Well, it started as a joke, the title anyway. Um, I have
0: been interested in the history of our blind ancestors. We always hear about Helen Keller and Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder and, and don't hear about the average blind guy who had to work twice as hard to get half as far Who is the person's shoulders that we are standing on today? Many of them that we have long forgotten their names are the people who were the trailblazers who started the cry for a school for the blind or started um, the cry to have laws changed, worked hard to get the right people in the right place, and then somebody else later on. Got the credit for it, but these are the people that I find inspiring because many of the people that I research, and they're from the 1800s to early 1900s, are blind people who many times did not have the opportunity of an education as a blind person, whether that be at a school for the blind or in a rehabilitation facility, because. Many rehabilitation facilities didn't exist. Um, They didn't have the opportunity to have a teacher come and work with them on a regular basis. They didn't have the opportunities for financial support that we have today. And yet, some of them made a great success out of their life. Um, I consider them successful. Not so much that they have a mansion on the hill, although there were a few that did, um, but that they gave back to the community. They were self-supporting. Some of them were self-supporting in standards that we wouldn't find acceptable today, but they were still self-supporting. And I try to find out as much as I can about how they did what they did. Uh, Did they travel with a cane? Uh, Blind people in canes came long before O&M instruction. Uh, Did they learn a a way of reading in some raised form or another? And have found that although they didn't have a teacher, they learned a little bit of a particular code and then invented the rest for themselves and did their own bookkeeping. Um, That they maybe had no family support and took out selling typewriters door to door until they earned enough money to purchase a business. Uh, the interesting ways that they did, what they did, how they did it, what tools did they use, what tools did they not have accessible to them? Um, I find that fascinating because here we are today with an employment ra- unemployment rate of around 70%.
1: It's been that way for a long time.
0: But in 1910, the unemployment rate was about 33% for blind people.
1: So, Peggy, if you don't mind my interrupting at this point, with all of the advocacy that we have for ourselves and having other groups advocate on our behalf, what made the unemployment rate go up so high since the early 1900s? What was the reason?
0: You know. I think you've got several things and some of them run parallel and don't intersect. First of all, in 1910, you could live in somebody's barn where today that would not be acceptable. Um,
1: And how did that keep the unemployment rate low?
0: Because they would have maybe um, the opportunity to live in that barn And feed the animals before they went out as a broom salesman. Or they could use that barn as their workshop and then sell door-to-door their brooms, uh, as long as they made sure they fed the chickens and the hogs. Um, That was a job. They could find other arrangements, um, not necessarily the way that we do today. And that style of living is long gone. And I think it was a lot easier for blind people to start up their own businesses back then because you didn't need to have proper ventilation uh, permits. Um,
1: But it's not the permits or the proper ventilation that prevents a lot of us from being successful. It's discrimination.
0: It is. And there was a lot of that going on back then because these people weren't making a lot of money. Uh, the people I was talking about who might have been living in a shed or uh, back room rooming houses would be maybe somebody's three bedroom house, and they probably had six people renting in that house. Um, a blind person might even own that house and be renting today in conditions that wouldn't be allowed, but they made the best that they could and survived because there wasn't. Um, social security supplemental income there wasn't a lot of finances that you could get from a state agency to help you with your living conditions and so these people also were working 60 70 80 hours a week
1: i'm very intrigued by that you you would think based on that that state agencies are almost not necessary if blind <laughs> if all the blind people of today had the means without the agencies to be successful like in the old days, I think we'd be all set.
0: Well, our definition of success today is not what it was back then. Because like I said, these people would be probably living out of a barn uh, or a shed or a back room. Um, you know, There's a, a famous piano tuner from Minnesota named Frank Hall. <clears throat> Frank Hall had a room. In a house that he shared with a lot of people. And he chose this place, even though it was expensive to live at that time, it was probably like maybe a dollar or two a week. But it had a phone. And he could get messages for piano tuning jobs from the phone, if people gave him the messages, that is. Um, But he would start his day, he'd get up, have breakfast. And he would start his day at seven in the morning. He would ride the trolley cars, walk the neighborhoods, handing out his business cards, asking to tune their pianos, or did they have an event he could play a piano at? And he would spend all day doing that. He would come home between four and eight in the evening. And if he had a piano to tune... Uh, then he would work on it. Then, and he might work on it till ten o'clock at night. Get back up and work again. Back out on the streets at seven in the morning, looking for employment. Um, he was a man who, um, in read in the Matilda Ziegler magazine about a blind man in Illinois. Now he lives in Minnesota. He read an article from the Matilda Ziegler magazine about a blind man who in Chicago went to the school district and said, your piano's in really rough shape. As public schools, you should be keeping these pianos in good shape, being responsible with the public taxpayers' money, and got a job as a piano tuner. So Frank Hall said, well, gee, if he can do that, I should try to do that. So, he goes to the school board meeting, and he's very nervous. He has his notes in Braille. Excuse me. He notices that other people are making deals on the side before the meeting and thinking, oh, I'm really sunk. Um, But what he had done before that meeting is he had gone to several of the schools and asked the principal of the school, how many pianos do you have? How often are they tuned? What kind of classes do you provide? Um, Can I see the pianos? So when he gets up, everyone else went up to this podium to address the school board. He didn't know where the podium was. He was nervous, he tripped. So he stands up in his place and he reads his notes. I went to these schools. You have X amount of pianos that haven't been tuned in four years. You have this amount of pianos that haven't been tuned in three years. A piano, in order to play properly, needs to be tuned twice a year. And if I tune your pianos for X amount of money twice a year, your pianos will last far times longer than these pianos who are in such and so a school that need to absolutely be replaced because they are beyond repair and he sat down and the school board talked about it for about five minutes and gave him the contract a contract he actually had for about another um, 45 fifty years uh, which provided him an opportunity to first of all move in to a house that he bought on contract for deed, took in two boarders. The reason he wanted a house was because now he had a garage to repair pianos because the school contracts weren't going to be enough uh, to keep him busy. But he made arrangements with music stores and took on the schools during the summer. He asked to tune pianos in the summer during school vacations so he wouldn't disrupt classes. Um, He set up these schedules with the schools that worked well with the schools, but also made it really comfortable for him to take on other jobs as well. And by the time he got married, he was able to purchase a really nice Three bedroom house that he raised his family in. Uh, but again, he's somebody who started out uh, not having really a regular place to stay until he earned enough money where he could get a room in a crowded boarding house that had a uh, telephone. Uh, the reason I say this about him is because when he graduated from school, his father was still alive, I believe, but his had been abandoned because he was a blind kid. The mother died. He was passed around uh, from family to family till they put him in the school for the blind. And then just family kind of forgot him except for an aunt or two. Um, he was under the impression um that if he went to uh, went to a business, he would be hired right away. He found out that wasn't the truth. Blind people were thought to be really good piano tuners, but maybe for somebody else's business, they had to have a reputation before they would be taken on, and he had to build up his reputation. So, with this contract with the public schools, that was he felt kind of a fluke because uh, he didn't know anybody on the school board. Um, But he stated his case, he'd done his research. And after he got the contract with the school board within a couple years and the working with a couple of piano stores, he had gotten this reputation and he was constantly busy, Um, did very well for himself, his children, all went to college in the 40s, uh, which was something that not a lot of sighted piano tuners could do. They couldn't necessarily afford that. So, he did very well. A lot of the, I think, what made these people from the 1800s, early 1900s, what I call successful, meaning that they could support themselves was the options were far worse than they are today. What I mean by that is that we have a cushion. Uh, There's probably some aid to the blind in your state, SSI, SSDI. There's um, affordable housing, Section 8 housing. The people back then didn't have housing options. They would um, sleep in fields, some of them. Uh, railroad cars, some of them. Men, not necessarily women. Women pretty much stayed home with a family member or worked for um, distant relatives as their live-in daycare, cook, house cleaner, whatever. But the men um, and sometimes families, your option was to go to the poor farm And a poor farm was in many ways worse than a jail in the sense that there was no food um, provided in the poor farm, just land and maybe a fence around it that they would close at night. If you were a woman by yourself, blind or sighted didn't matter. You didn't go into a poor farm by yourself. You would not come out a whole person most likely. Uh, if you went in as a group, someone stayed up all night to watch your belongings um, so that you weren't robbed, nobody took your shoes, nobody took your coats, uh, your blankets. Um, so if you went in with uh, as a blind person, you tried to go in with a group, not by yourself. And yet that's where, people ended up, uh, if they went to the county for help, they would go to the poor farm or be sent to the poor farm. And um, I have news clippings of people who tried to kill themselves uh, by laying on railroad tracks, um, setting fires, rather than go to the poor farm. Uh, Men would commit crimes to spend a few days in jail rather than go to the poor farm. Uh, They felt that was safer. So, you've got parallel things going on. You've got a totally different society uh, when it comes to that time period. Things that people wouldn't do today, they did back then as a matter of course. Things that we wouldn't find acceptable, they did back then as a matter of course. Um, Also, there was a lot more pressure on families to take care of those less fortunate in your family. Um, I told you about Frank Hall, who went to the School for the Blind and was pretty much forgot about by his family. That was one extreme. Um, There were the other extremes where once you came out of the school for the blind, you went to work on the family farm, which is why a lot of the schools for the blind had agricultural programs. Uh, Not only because the agricultural programs provided food, uh, meat, dairy, eggs for the school, but training for the kids and young adults because that many of them were going to go back into a rural setting, so they learned how to care for the animals, care for the crops, identify the plants, um, hoe the fields, uh, tend to the tomato garden, um, how to know when the vegetables and fruits were ripe, so that then when they went back home, many of the families had to have all hands on deck in order to maintain the family farm, and. The blind person, when they left the school, could go home to the family and tend to the chickens, tend to the cows, tend to the garden, do the families wash, take in wash from other families, um, uh, provide the large meals that you had to have during thrashing season or what have you. So they fit in differently into the family than you do today. Uh, so that's kind of a long answer to that. Um, p- if you went to a charity or a county or the city and asked for financial support, your name would go in the paper and that would shame your family at church. So your family didn't want you to go to the county if they were living there. Um, they tried that
1: today, there'd be lawsuits.
0: <laughs> very different times uh very different times so families helped each other out in ways found um for many not all but found for many a way to fit in and contribute to the family for example broom making was a sedentary job felt to be sedentary and so if you were living on a farm uh, brooms were something that the houses went through, you know, uh, one every one or two months. So you sat on the the back porch or the front porch and you wound the broom straw and made these brooms that when they went to town to sell the eggs, they took some of the brooms with and sold them as well. Uh, so it was a way to contribute to the family.
2: Uh, so, Peggy. um uh, this is really fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I'm reminded. Uh, you say things are different now, and they are, of course. Uh, except that I, you're talking about uh, uh, people going to jail rather than going to, um, you know, the uh, what you call the 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 the, far, the, the poor, Especially poor if folks.
0: it was cold in the winter.
2: Exactly. But I, I can't help but but think about what's going on in many cities about the homeless folks, many of whom do indeed would uh, do crimes so they can, so they can't go to jail or they can't go to psychiatric hospitals uh there you know there there are some there are some similarities not yeah. you know not that many, but there are some and uh I just was thinking about that so well, Peggy, let me
0: tell you a, yeah, another another sure. story about a blind guy sure. who I am getting ready to write. Um, one of my monthly emails, by the way, for the use of you, those of you who don't know, I have a monthly email that I send out and I'm if on you it. want to be on my monthly email. Yeah. Bob, I, yeah uh, you might want to send me an email at the blind history lady. That's all one word at gmail.com and say, let me be on your email list. And I will send you a story uh, once a month. This month was about a lady who, um, we don't know very much about, uh, but she went into a collective religious order um, when her family broke apart uh, after the death of the father and the older children moving away and so on, um, and then ended up in California from from the East Coast to the West Coast. How she got there, we don't know, but she went into um, um, an institution for blind people out there, and uh, later became this old folks home type thing. Um, And that's where she learned Braille. That's where she learned her skills. But one person who has fascinated me in Colorado is um, a blind man who, when you go and look things up about him, it says he has trouble with his eyes. But To what extent? I didn't know. So I've spent the last couple of years trying to find that out. And I know that he was legally blind by the time he was in his mid-20s. And maybe even a little earlier, but absolutely for certain by his mid-20s. So we didn't think of blindness as we do today. Blindness was if you couldn't read or see people within a few feet from you, you were blind but if you were somebody who was, say, 2020, uh, 2200, maybe even 2400, you still drove a horse and buggy. You still tended the fields. Um, You still could uh, be a lamplighter. Um, They didn't think of you as a blind person. So, we extended that title more in today's world. And Sometimes I wonder if we don't live down to the stereotype of blindness. Those who are higher partials, um, because the the man I want to tell you about is Elias Ammons, and he came from a family, grew up. Um, he was born a little before the Civil War, so he grew up in North Carolina. Not a lot of educational opportunities period um, during the Civil War and after. His parents came um, to Colorado in about 1874. He went to work at the age of 12. Um, He was a factory worker. Um, He was a lamplighter when he saved up enough money to afford his school books because you had to pay for your books even in public school back then. Uh, He went to school, graduated from high school. Just before high school, he got the measles and it affected his eyes. So he gave up his factory work and uh, being a lamplighter, when he recovered his health, he went out and worked in the uh, logging camps, driving the teams of horses, to the sawmills, taking the um, railroad tries, ties because they were building a railroad through then, lit- wagon loads of them, and by this time, definitely, he was probably legally blind, if not close to it. Gets a job at a newspaper. Um, he uh, works at this newspaper uh, till he really he can't read print anymore at all, and goes into cattle ranching with this other guy. The two of them make a fair amount of money with cattle ranching. Uh, he becomes a state representative. Uh, then he becomes a state senator. While he's a state senator, he changes the rules a little bit in that certain meetings, no one but the senators were allowed in. He was the first senator to ever bring in his secretary. Uh, He had an additional secretary. Now, how was he doing a lot of this reading? Well, his eight-year-old daughter, when she turned eight, had gone to school, was a pretty good, intelligent kid. She started being his secretary. Uh, His wife was also his reader and guide. Um, He never learned to travel very well. He could get lost in a phone booth if there were phone booths back then. Um, But it didn't stop him from trying. And when he would set out and get lost, he'd find somebody, ask them where they were going. Can you tell me how to get to so-and-so? And then he'd talk to them. And it was kind of like his outreach as a state rep, as a state senator, talking to people in his community, talking to other senators, talking to other staffers, other government employees. And that is how he became the sponsor of certain pieces of legislation was from the people that he met when he was out getting lost.
1: (laughs) Peggy, one of the most important questions that I feel I should ask at this moment, as you're talking about him, about who helped him and, and how did he succeed as a state rep, but how did he become a state rep? He must have had a lot of votes from people who had a lot of faith and trust in blind people. Today, all you hear about is, No, not really.
0: Nope. And I'll tell you why. In his case, he he had the great gift of gab. When he was in high school, he was on the debating team, what we would call the debating team today. But what he had also was a startup ranch and having the same trouble with getting cattle to market, getting the cattle... When they got the cattle to market, was there enough room for the cattle? Um, Who was stealing their cattle? Where were the legal resources and options that they had? Why were the railroads charging them so much money? He took his problems to the state um, legislature and he said, I will fight for our right as ranchers to be able to get A decent fare on the railroads to get our cattle there. I will fight for our right to be able to cross railroad land to get our cattle to Denver. I will fight for the cattle yards to be under um, more governmental control and to be enlarged. Um, He took his issues there and his problems and spoke for the others. And that's how he got there uh, because he demonstrated at home that he was willing to take on the railroads for crossing his cattle, getting his cattle across. And he didn't exclude his neighbor, he didn't say, Hey, let's make a special deal for my herd. He said, We need to make a cross area for all the cattle in my community to cross over your railroad. And that's how he built his trust. He didn't just look out for himself. And he continued that. Now, he um, didn't serve for a few years in the State House or Senate. Uh, He went into... um, Developing what is called here Cattle Congress. He was a founder of Cattle Congress, which is a big stock show, much more than a fair, uh, where you can buy and sell your, your cattle. Um, you have classes in husbandry. Um, you hear from veterinarians. You can have your cattle checked by veterinarians. He put, he was one of the founders who put that together. It's still operating today. But in um, 1915, Nineteen thirteen, he runs for governor, becomes governor of the state of Colorado. Now, by this time, he does not have the ability to recognize people sitting across the table from him. Um, he uh, he he didn't get reelected, mostly because there was a riot that took place in Southern California uh, with between the miners. And the mining companies. And he sent down the um, National Guard to sort of tame things down. And the National Guard actually made things worse. And so they used it against him. Now, after that riot, that's when you start to see in the newspapers about the little short sighted blind governor. A little short-sighted, the little blind governor, um, the misinformed blind governor, the governor who can't see what's really going on in the state. That's when they started to talk about his blindness openly in the newspaper, Media but not much.
1: Media was almost the same back then as it is today, some of it.
0: <laughs> some of it. Not much. It was not as bad as it is today. Um, but you also wanted to make sure you didn't slander the next guy because there weren't two parties. Like when he ran for governor, there were five parties and you had to get a good majority of the people to back you in the state. And um, I think he got like about 30% to win the governorship, something around that. Uh, And that was a goodly majority uh, for an office. Um, But he then, Um, uh, after he left the um, governor's office, still active in politics, he founded the Historical Library, uh, the State Historical Association. Um, He was the president of an insurance company, uh, all up until his death in about 1925. And so, here's a guy who just He didn't consider himself blind until about the time he hit the Senate, because he'd lost enough vision where he could not really read anymore. He did his own typing um, up until, um, I think, the end of his uh, Senate career, when he started to have secretaries uh, taking care of that for
2: him.
1: But here's a a guy who had...
2: Go ahead. I was just going to say, and it sounds like society, quote unquote, or the media or however you want to say it, didn't view this guy as being blind until he uh, did things that people didn't like so much. You know, as you mentioned, the National Guard, exactly, which is which is really interesting. I mean, it's sort of a uh, well,
1: he
0: he used a man's walking stick from time to time, but I can't find evidence of him using it as we would use a white cane or as other blind folks used a white cane. He did not associate with blind people until 1915, partly because he just didn't. It was a very rural area. There was no services for blind people in Colorado other than the School for the Blind, and he was past the age of that by the time he'd lost his vision. So, he didn't use blindness techniques. He was well-poised. He looked people at people when they talked to him. Um, he walked with people. Um, he did travel some alone, but like I said, not very well. So he tried to travel in groups, um, have a guide with him. When it was impossible, he did strike out on his own and met a lot of friends. Um, so his... Although he was worried about his blindness, he was not worried about it in such a way that it would stop him. He was more concerned about finding a way to make things happen, not how am I going to hide it from people or I don't know how to be a blind person, but I need to have this done. How am I going to do it? Not so much because I'm blind, but because I need to have this done. So he put his blindness on a back burner. Uh, He didn't advertise it, but he didn't hide it. So people had very different ways of coping uh, back then.
1: You are listening to In Perspective, and my name is Bob Branco, and my co-host is Peter Alchil. We're here with Peggy Chung, the blind history lady, and it's time now for our participants to ask questions of our guests. So Ray, if you can encourage anyone participating to raise their hands, like we normally do on the program.
0: Absolutely. Um, Which we already have a couple of people already. So uh, that being said to three people now to raise your hand, it is alt Y on, um, on, uh, Alt-Y on PC, Alt-Option-Y uh, on Mac, Star-9 on Telephone, and another More tab for smartphones. And then for muting, it's Alt-A on PC, um, Command-Shift-A on Mac, Star-6 on Telephone, and um, lower left on smartphones. And first up, we have... Phone number ending in... Uh, Phone number ending in
2: eight, eight, zero. Eight, eight, zero. Hi,
1: Hello, what is your name? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. We can hear you, what's your name?
2: uh, Matt from where, please? uh, Matt from uh, Ashburn, Virginia. Awesome, and your question, please. Um, Yes, so um, thank you very much for uh, this presentation. Uh, I I firmly believe in the the power of history to uh, help uh, resolve and advise present-day problems. Uh, I'd like to know is um, just wondering does uh, does Ms. Chong um, uh, confer with uh, people currently in the workforce um, even though today's economy is much, much different from um, uh, past years and decades and centuries. Um, uh, the, there's a ACB call called entering the workforce on Mondays around noon. And, uh, I think the people on that call would find the, the history, um, uh, um, very inspiring. And thank you. That's my question.
0: Thank you, Matt. Um, you. I write about people who are dead. Uh, first of all, they tend not to change my, um, stories. Um, <laughs> people who are alive want things put in the best perspective. And although I try to make most of my people um, to be more um, positive, um, you have to tell the bad parts as well. Um, I I talked to a lot of groups. I've talked to several um, ACB groups in the past and um, I usually charge a fee of uh, $60 for up to an hour presentation um, to uh, talk to those groups. And they can also reach me at, at gmail.com if they want me to come in and, and make a presentation. Uh, because, I, yes, um, when I have spoken to some school groups, uh, especially blind kids in school and high school, I think they need to know what the real world is like, and we don't have um, we don't have quite the harsh realities that some of the kids grew up in back at the schools for the blind in the 1880s that we do today. I'm not saying that um, our children in schools for the blind do not have some tragic home lives; there certainly are, but. You know, depending on when these kids grew up, there were many famines uh, where the where communities just did not have enough food, uh, where mom was working washing people's clothes um, and getting barely enough money to buy groceries for the week. Um, so there was a whole different look. Of what life would be like after school. Um, I think sometimes the kids that we have today come out of school thinking, just like a lot of sighted kids, that I'm just going to go be president of Facebook right off the bat. And I think the kids back uh, who went to the schools for the blind in the 1800s, even through the mid-1900s, did not have that same outlook. Uh, they knew that they were starting far behind the start line and knew that the finish line was farther away from for them and that they had to be uh they had to be their best salesperson if they were going to accomplish anything, whether that be opening their own business or whether that meant going to work for somebody else, even In the traditional blind jobs, like being a piano tuner, like Frank Hall, um, he found that, yep, they thought blind piano tuners were some of the best, but you better prove it first and not at my shop.
2: Thank you, Matt. Uh, Ray, who's next? Um, Next up, we have Liz.
3: Hi, can you hear me? Yes. I'm sorry. I apologize for my lousy microphone. I'm really sorry. Um, Oh, good. At least that's hopeful. Um, I'm old enough to remember ADA passing when I was well into adulthood and well into my working life, as are you, Peter. And I know that people of a lot of the baby boomer blind generation, people born in the 50s, for instance, 50 through sixty. A lot of us went to work, and a lot of us assumed we'd go to work. There wasn't ever any question that we would go to work, or and there wasn't any question from our teachers or our mentors or our parents or whatever that we would that we would work at some level, doing something. I guess what I'm wondering is, there's a lot of um, fuzziness around statistics. Do we have a sense of whether there are more people who are legally blind or totally blind or anything working now than there was 20 years ago? Are there less? I know there's all kinds of extenuating circumstances, but what do you know about statistics over the last 20, 30 years? Has it gotten worse or better? And and talk about why those things might be happening if you could.
0: Well, it, it kind of depends on what study you're looking
4: at. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> That's the scary part. So yeah. talk about that if you could. Well, I'm it, just trying to get a sense of whether more people are actually bringing in money that, rather than receiving SSI and SSDI, say. It,
0: it, I, you have to look at the the basis for the study, who did the study, who was their study group, Um, And, you know, for example, when I'm looking at the 1910 census, um, I have studied that. So when they said that 66% of the blind population were self-supporting, that did not mean that they had a nice job. That meant that they were not getting any welfare from a charity a mostly a church or something like that, or yeah. from a s- state uh, or well not state but county or city. right um, and that they were not supported by their family. Um, they did count people who were working in what we would consider today sheltered workshops.
3: Okay, but does that stuff shift over time? What happens when you get into the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? Well,
0: and again, who did the study? Because some didn't count sheltered workshop employment where others did.
3: Yeah, I I get all that. I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to, I, I do get that. And, you know, I did economics and I understand how messy it is, but do we have any kind of, sense overall about is it getting better is kind of where i'm going
0: i i say that from what i look at the statistics that i want to look at Mm -hmm. that balance out with how i feel about Mm -hmm. the employment that we still waffle around 70 percent of unemployment
1: and that's a shame
2: i joined that's but that statistic i'm sorry bob that statistic is is all of the math as well uh, uh that, th- that that's that know. that's that 70% figure uh is generally is as, as best as I understand it, not uh is it, it's considered really accurate statistics. The, the the most statistics, the best I've seen recently seem to indicate that the unemployment rate among blind people and people with disabilities is something like two to three two to three times higher than the general population. So At I don't but that that's the stat that I that I've heard that seems to be most respected these days but you know how do you statistics are just it's just so frustrating yeah I, See, I, I, okay. Liz, this, this is what you're saying too i think yeah yeah,
3: yeah. yeah
2: it's just unbelievably frustrating i don't know yeah, how you I, I,
3: I have the same experience i've been sitting in on that um monday monday jobs called also and i'm struck by a couple of things first of all i'm struck by the fact that like we never get attendance over about 10 people which means that out of the population of, of potential employment people, employed people, there aren't many people interested in being on the call. Now it is at noon, which is not a good time, I agree but I won't, which is, that's not a good time. I mean, it's right smack in the middle of the day. A lot of
1: things happen at noon. I don't know where that evolves, but that's another subject for another day,
3: but it's a poor time to do anything other than a social call. And so attempting to have it at noon may be part of their problem, but I don't know that it's all the problem. Um, And I'm amazed at some of the comments. I don't know if I really want to work because it would interfere with my going to the mall for lunch. Um,
1: Oh, really?
3: Oh, really? That's just, that's amazing. Okay. So apparently somebody's paying for his food or something. Who knows what's going on Liz,
1: if I can make a comment, I'll tell you something else I've heard. I don't want to go to work because it's going to interfere with my SSI. Yeah. Well. I've I've heard think,
3: that. No, I think that there is real confusion about that. And I think that the fact that nobody bothers to go onto the website of Social Security and find out what the stipulations are says something about SSI and your willingness to work because you, in fact, can make, I don't know, $2,200. And it says it right there on the website. I mean, you can put it in in Google and find the answer in five minutes. It's no big deal.
1: And by the way, the unemployment rate was the same 40 years ago uh, of the blind than it is today. So
3: that's why no improvement. That's what I well, see, that's why I question the statistics. But I'm just wondering on a on a level, you know, my generation, I talk to people in my generation and we all worked. We maybe didn't work full time. Some of us work sheltered workshops, but we worked. And we we worked for years, many of us. And I'm not so sure that the reason to work is as evident to people in their 20s and 30s now. And so they end up not working and then they hit their 50s and 60s and they're, they don't have anything.
0: And, and I think that goes back to what I said at the beginning, where we've got We've got a safety net and we tend to use that safety net where back, you know, 60, 80 years ago, there was no safety net.
3: Well, there's two things there. I think one thing is that we've got a safety net. And two, I think that, you know, safety nets can also be thought of as cages because I think one of the reasons for SSI to be passed is so that people could take care of blind people without having us interfere with their um little lives you know they just didn't have to see us we didn't have to be out there we could go home and quietly we are talking about well, and- I
0: think this is generally part of our society is that yeah. with the younger people we're not looking forward to 10 years we're looking forward to tomorrow or tonight and that's And um, that's that's where the blind folks are making a mistake in that you know if you choose not to go to work because you're going to lose your SSI or you don't want to get up that early or whatever when you hit 55 you're going to be living in a 400 square foot yep community unit with yeah. no privacy and then wonder why it is that those other blind guys can afford a cruise to Australia?
3: Oh, and we why, have, while we're um, at it, we
1: have five minutes.
0: Okay, we, yeah, have, uh, uh, we got a couple cool more on. questions. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go! Thank you,
3: thank, thank you. you, and hi, Peter.
0: Thank you. Sorry, Lisa, thank uh, you. we just we have four other people. Oh, go ahead, Ray. So, go ahead, Ray. Uh, thank you, Pam. You are up next.
4: Yes, I'll make this very brief. Um, great presentation, by the way. Um, I think a lot of the problem is that back in the day, back in the 19th century, people who were blind or had other disabilities, and especially if they had been abandoned, they had to rely on their own creativity. They had to be creative if they were going to survive. Uh, Now we have big brother vocational rehabilitation services. And nowadays they start stepping into your life when you're in probably elementary school. Back when I was coming along, you were in high school and they started. And they were their main thing was to tell you why if if you aspired to be a oh a writer or anything other than what they thought you should be. Mm. Uh, They weren't going to work with you. They tried to steer you into stuff that you might not have any ability at. And I think that's what part of the problem is now. We are not allowed to even try and possibly fail like sighted people are. They're not told what they can do and what they can't do. Well, and so, there's also
0: the- a lot about the medical profession, too. Yes. And I've seen this show up in some other areas as well. But, you know, it, when groups moved west, when the country yeah. was moving west, there was no medical doctor. So right. if you were injured, you lost a hand, you lost yep. your hearing. It didn't matter. You you dealt with it and mm-hmm. you had to continue on because Mm -hmm. there was not a lot out here. There wasn't a shopping mall to go to and hang out. Uh, There was no community center. There was, you got to go find the firewood. You got to Mm -hmm. shear the sheep. You got it, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the medical profession comes along and, oh, let's see if we can fix you or cure you or whatever. (laughs) And blind people kind of got sucked into that. Yeah. And so we became a medical something to be people to be done to rather mm-hmm. than people who had to pull their weight just like the guy who lost his hand in the dynamite explosion.
1: We have also. about 1 minute. We have yeah, so time for one more call. Yeah, so okay, right. thank, thank you Pam. Thanks. Chris,
2: you're up next. Chris. Hello. Um
4: I am wondering whether people who were born blind were treated any differently in the history uh, annals that you're working with than people who lost their sight even if even at a few years old
0: it depends on where they grew up and when they grew up and what conditions they they face because um some of the blind kids were treated as oh my gosh these are just Amazing little kids look at they can all walk holding onto each other's shoulders and cross exactly. the street. Oh, they're so ma- amazing. Yeah. Um, and yet others felt that the blind kids should not be seen because it would embarrass or upset people. You have the same thing with adults. So it yeah. just well, depended.
1: Unfortunately, okay. we are out of time. Yeah. This it's interesting, though. It is Very a fascinating show, pe- show as always, Peggy. And you brought out, out some points that we really need to think about. Is today's society reversing things a little more than we thought they would and that's what i'm getting the impression of today
2: well I, and I, of I, course I, I hope
1: that's not true but you never know i suppose peggy thank you very much for being on the program thanks
0: for having me again hey i'm at the blind lady at gmail.com
1: the blind yeah. history lady at gmail.com thanks again next week we're going to have with us renee Rentmeester. some of you may know her already she has a program called cooking without looking it's been around for a long long time she's going to talk to us about that and other related subjects peter ray participants thank you for making this show very good today go safe with god's abundant blessings i'm bob branco he's peter alchel have a great day